online, on digital radio and television, and on the ABC Listen app. On ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania, this is The Country Hour with Lucy Cooper. G'day. Good afternoon. Happy Wednesday. Coming up on today's show, the plan to put wind turbines on Robins Island has hit yet another hurdle in its ongoing saga. We, we certainly feel that the case about Robins Island not having a wind farm is a very strong case. And there's plenty of jobs in agriculture, but let's add another into the mix, a food stylist. A lot of it is um, the kind of final display of what food looks like, but before that there's a lot of recipe testing, recipe development, recipe writing. First up, former Labor MP Craig Emerson has today been appointed by the government to review the Food and Grocery Code of Conduct to ensure consumers are getting the best possible deal. It follows calls for an ACCC inquiry into alleged supermarket price gouging are growing as many Australian households continue to struggle with the cost of living crisis. Supermarkets say they're working to strike the right balance between what's paid to farmers and checkout prices. More politicians are weighing in on the issue. Queensland's Premier Stephen Miles has asked to meet with supermarket chief executives to discuss the matter. The Tasmanian Country Hour asked Joe Palmer, the Minister for Primary Industries and Water here in Tasmania, to be on the program today to discuss this issue, but our request was denied. Agriculture Minister Murray Watt says supermarkets are underpaying farmers and overcharging consumers. Yeah, well, I've been calling for several months now for supermarkets to do the right thing, both by farmers and consumers, uh, because I think everyone can see it just doesn't pass the pub test uh, for farmers to be paying, being paid so little for their produce and consumers to be being charged so much. Uh, we have seen, in response to those calls, some action from supermarkets to drop some of their prices, particularly for things like sheep meat, uh, but there's a long way to go. Uh, And what we hope to achieve through this review of the Code of Conduct for food and grocery industry uh, is a lot more transparency from the supermarket chains and big retailers about what sort of prices they are paying producers. uh, And that allows farmers uh, to have a more level playing field when they're negotiating with wholesalers and retailers. But it also gives consumers a much bigger picture about what the sort of price differential is between what farmers are, are receiving and what consumers are paying. How can you achieve both things, though? How can prices be brought down on supermarket shelves for consumers and at the same time, how can farmers be paid more for what they produce? Yeah, the primary focus of this review will be looking at, as I say, the level of transparency between retailers and their suppliers and wholesalers. Uh, And I think it will achieve a lot to really overcome that situation where farmers Um, just don't really know what prices the farmer up the road is getting when they're selling their produce to one of the retailers and therefore they don't really know what price to be charging the retailers and the wholesalers themselves. But I think that improving that transparency uh, and making sure that all of us know what what the supermarkets and retailers are paying and how they're conducting their business more generally that will really provide everyone with a much clearer picture and I think put at, at the very minimum put moral pressure on the retailers to do the right thing when they're setting their prices in supermarkets. If everyone has a better idea, 
that a farmer is getting a very low price for their produce, it's pretty hard for the retailers to be able to justify charging a lot more at the supermarket shelves. Are the supermarkets essentially ripping off farmers and profiting uh, at their expense? I think that there are definitely cases where that's happening. Um, uh, and as I say, I just don't, no one can really explain the prices that consumers are paying when farmers are getting so little. And I do think there are cases where farmers are being ripped off by the market power that the supermarket chains have uh, and wholesalers along the way as well. Uh, we've seen so many examples now where farmers are really getting below the price of production uh, for all of their hard work. Uh, and someone is making a lot of money, and it's people further up the chain. Just taking a step back, what actually is the Food and Grocery Code, and what, what function does it perform? Yeah, so the Food and Grocery Code of Conduct has been around for a few years now, and it's a voluntary code, which is one of the issues in itself, and we'll be having a look at whether we should make some of the obligations mandatory on the retailers and wholesalers. But what it's really designed to do is to regulate the behaviour of people in the food and grocery chain uh, supply chain uh, and, and provide some level of transparency. But clearly, it's not working the way it's going at the moment because we don't have the level of transparency and farmers don't have that sort of information flowing through to them from retailers and wholesalers, and that's why we think it needs to be reviewed. So, as I say, the way it's structured at the moment uh, is it's a voluntary code, um, but it's quite possible that as a result of this review, we may see that some of the obligations on retailers to be to make more information public may become mandatory rather than voluntary. It may be that we see much uh, more effective complaints mechanisms for farmers to be able to use if they feel they're being ripped off, and it may result in much stronger penalties against retailers and wholesalers who do the wrong thing. So they're the kind of things that we're having a look at through this review. Agriculture Minister Murray Watt speaking with Angus Verley. It's an issue impacting our everyday lives and I want to get your perspective on it. Get in touch, text in 0438 922 936. That's 0438 And on this topic, one fresh food analyst says supermarkets have much less pricing power in this category than most people think. Managing Director of Fresh Logic, Martin Kneebone. The competitive environment the supermarkets work in is not well understood, particularly with fresh food, because they are they're dealing with um, a substantial specialist retailer sector, butchers, bakers, fishmongers and fruiterers, and they are competent uh, in this marketplace in Australia, and they give the supermarkets definitely a run for their money. So to think that in fresh food the supermarkets can just set their prices and disregard each other or those independent uh, specialist operators uh, I, I think is not right. I think that uh, it's the, the price setting is very much a, a some of those competitive dynamics. And let's not overlook the fact that we've got a very competent competitor come into this market just over 20 years ago and they have opened and successfully operate nearly 600 stores. So if the competitive bar was down, it's certainly a lot higher than what it was 20 years ago. And, um, you know, those three supermarkets need to watch each other quite carefully because the mix of real estate that we have in place means that in many locations people can park in one place and shop in two or three supermarkets. So the competitive alternatives are ready and available.
Yeah, interesting. So you 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 say basically that it is a competitive market, which uh, uh, with the commentary at least, it, it's that seems to not be the general consensus. If you know what I mean. Well, yeah, I agree. That's that's what I get from the commentary. But let's look at something like fruit and vegetables specifically. The, the fruiterers or the greengrocers would hold 20% market share, which is a meaningful market share. And most major supermarkets have got one at the front door. Now, they can source inventory when they want, whenever they want, uh, through central markets, and they will compete directly with the supermarkets. And you've got about 20, 25% of supermarket shoppers walk through the supermarket and then go and shop at the greengrocer. So I'd call that a fairly a fairly high bar in terms of competition. And if the, if the retailer involved disregards the fruiter or another supermarket in proximity, I think they would see it in their sales very quickly, within hours, typically. And then I suppose, so the, the attention at the moment on, you know, perceived high fruit, fruit and veg prices, you know, would, in your opinion, could you put that down to normal volatile fresh food markets and I suppose just general inflation then? Well, there's not much inflation in fruit and veg. The price is set by supply, and uh, if supply changes, it'll be reflected in the wholesale price, and that pretty much flows straight through to retail. So, And it has been changes in the availability of supply over the last 18 months that caused a lot of volatility. And therefore, shortages of supply means that prices go up. Martin Kneebone from Fresh Logic speaking to Hugh Hogan. So what do farmers think, the people growing the produce, working in the field? What's happening on farms locally? Is it feasible for farmers to ditch the big three supermarket change? Joining me on the program is our Bernie Rural reporter, Meg Powell. Good afternoon. Hey, Lucy. How are you going? Great, thank you. Meg, what do farmers have to say on this topic? It's a real mixed bag out there, I have to say. Probably one of the most striking things I've noticed, though, is that everyone has an opinion. Not many farmers want to go on the record, which probably tells a story all on its own. Something about biting the hand that feeds you, I guess. Uh, But uh, probably another common theme coming out of my conversations is probably a perceived lack of choice that farmers feel they have. So if this is, even if they're not happy with this contract they have, where else can they go in this market where Woolies and Coles own such a large market share? And where you're based, for our listeners, what kind of farmers are you speaking to? What kind of things do they grow? Well, mostly vegetables up here. So the Northwest classics, peas, poppies, potatoes, anything starting with a pea, we grow it up here. Carrots, onions, a lot of uh, vegetables in pretty large volumes, some of them. Uh, Plus a few more niche things that people are selling that uh, I won't say because that will identify the people and they they don't want to go on the record. I mean, there's a lot of people who don't want to go on the record. Have you spoken to any farmers who may want to speak out, maybe they don't send their produce to the major supermarkets? Yeah, yeah. So I did manage to speak this morning to Matthew Young from East Sassafras. Uh, Matthew grows veggies, none of which head to a major supermarket, so he feels a little bit freer to to speak. In fact, uh, he once turned down a contract to supply celeriac into Woolworths, and that, that possibly would have helped him upscale the farm, he says. But also, he says he has no interest in supplying the major supermarkets. I haven't gone chasing a Woolies contract and 
I did get offered it once when we were growing celeriac on a larger scale and sending it to the mainland, but I worked out it was going to cost me somewhere between $140,000 to $180,000 just to meet their requirements of the packing shed and quality assurance and everything else to start supplying before I'd even supplied a single bulb. And I don't have a lot of faith in some of the big supermarkets and their abilities that they'll turn around and go, well, sorry, we can get it cheaper somewhere else and just get it from them. So you're stuck with all this money outlaid and no return for it. Wow. So a $180,000 outlay before you even start selling. Yep. Yep. And that was just basically building a packing shed to meet their requirements um, because what we were doing at the time didn't suit. uh, So there would have been washing lines, all sorts of different things we would have had to do to meet the economies of scale that we would need it to supply what they wanted because it was supplying a fair whack of southern Australia. So it wasn't just Tassie, it was Victoria, South Australia and parts of New South. So, yeah, it would have been a big step and we just looked at it and went, well, honestly, we're happy doing what we're doing and we don't need the headaches or the cost outlay that go with it. Yeah, we probably are missing out on a bit of money, but in the scheme of things, I think life's easy continuing to do what we do and diversifying and growing lots of different things and spreading our risk out that way. And on that topic of an ACCC inquiry, Matthew hopes it will yield positive results for the industry. Um, It's certainly something that needs looking at. I think the amount of wastage that goes along with that, the pricing that we get. um, I know with the processing vegetables that grow, that's always an interesting discussion when it comes to price, but we're also dealing with a world market with that. So that's a big, big step. But... um, Coles and Woolies seem to be very profit-driven, which as a business they need to be, but they seem to be very picky with what they can purchase and what meets requirements and everything's done their way, which is understandable in some ways when you're running a business that big. You've got to be able to control things, but it's also got to work for the farmer at the other end. And I think that disparity gets a bit different at times to where it probably should be. Now, this situation with price transparency has all happened while supermarkets continue to post billion-dollar profits. It's a bit interesting. They're saying they can't afford to pay the producers or pay more for the product, but they're turning around and making a billion dollars worth of profit. Like, I understand businesses have got to make the profit, but a billion dollars is a lot of money in anybody's books. Um, so, so I can't wind that back a little bit and pass a little bit back to the growers who are actually producing the vegetables and other products that they're selling and make it even for everybody, then, yeah, I don't know how that would work. But, yeah, a billion dollars is a lot of money in anyone's books. So, it's yeah, very interesting that they can produce that but can't pass it on. Really, really interesting perspective <laughs> there. And uh, no doubt an ongoing situation for farmers in the northwest and across the state. Yeah, that's right. And there's there's so many perspectives up here. I mean, some farmers have a really good working relationship with Coles and Woolies and are happy with things the way they are. So we'll keep exploring that for sure. Meg Powell, thank you so much for joining us. See you later. ABC Bernie, rural reporter Meg Powell. And price gouging is an issue not just limited to one farm nor one agricultural district It's statewide, it's national. Here in Tasmania, Ian Saw is a farmer and Tas Farmers president. He says an ACCC inquiry into supermarket pricing is well overdue. 
farmers have been calling for an inquiry for about five years. However, I think people, it really hit home more than anything was last year when the of meat plummeted um, and there was no corresponding decrease within the supermarkets. And, you know, it's not just meat, it's vegetables as well. I'm pretty sure I'm right, but last year there was a survey, Ausveg did a survey, and 34% of the growers on the mainland wanted to get out um, simply because of low prices. So I think the consumers can see that there's a disparity. The farmers have been feeling that pain for a long time, so everyone's happy to make sure that the duopoly um, is looked into carefully. As a farmer yourself, I mean, what's your thought process about why supermarkets charge so much for produce. How do you kind of reason with it? Oh, there's a duopoly. That's all it is. I mean, the uh, the supermarkets can do basically what they want in a duopoly. I mean, that's economics 101. Um, you know, there was that old JFK saying farmers, you know, they buy in retail, sell wholesale and pay the freight both ways. And I think with the supermarkets, um, at the moment, it's not just the prices that they're paying, the enormous power they've got over the farmers, but it's their terms of trade. I mean, you know, we, we as TAS farmers are hearing that there, you know, that there are people on terms of trade 120 days, and these are for cycles. There might be four selling cycles in that 120 days. So <clears throat> clearly the supermarkets have got the upper hand. Um, supermarkets talk about the cost effectiveness and the efficiencies of farmers. Um, I'm quite convinced that Australian farmers have got some of the most efficient food production cycles in the world, but we don't know how efficient the supermarkets are. So um, it's an interesting thing. How good are their logistics? <clears throat> we know that they waste a lot of food, a lot of food's thrown out. So I'm saying that the farmers are producing good, clean food at a very affordable price. The supermarkets are taking advantage of that, and I'm not so certain that what they're doing um, with the selling of the food and retailing it is uh, cost-effective because we don't know. I mean, often when we talk about price gouging, it's often in regard to current cost of living crisis and the fact that people simply can't afford that fruit and veg. From a farming perspective, however... Is it more a matter of if I'm paying, say, $7 a kilo for capsicums, the farmers aren't necessarily receiving that price? No, well, I think it's like with all vegetables, um, all fruits. The, uh, the farmers aren't paid very much at all, but the, but the supermarkets certainly um, have got a significant, a significant markup. And that all needs to be looked at carefully with these inquiries. I mean, the, the TAS farmers supportive of the inquiries in fact we support the national farmers federation push um, that needs to be happy that that needs to be done we also just need to be just a little bit careful there's nothing wrong in making a profit otherwise they wouldn't be there um, and you've got to be a little bit careful if government intervened too much because sometimes you'll get a market failure and that would be bad for everyone but clearly at the moment the duopoly has shown that it is not fair on the farmers nor is it fair on the retailers or the consumers and that needs to be fixed up i mean i find it extraordinary that there's a you know there's a code of conduct that most of the supermarkets have uh, signed up to but they're not even adhering to the code of conduct so i think that that's where the government can step in by making sure that there's a, a mandatory code of conduct that there is some price um, disclosure um, issues 
And the other thing is that, you know, and I know the National Farmers Federation have called for it, there needs to be some whistleblower protection. Um, you may have found out yourself, you're not going to find many farmers who are supplying the retail end of the process willing to speak out about how they're being treated by the big supermarkets. So those people need some protection as well. We understand an inquiry will now be happening into this duopoly and into price gouging. What hopes do you have for the outcome of this inquiry, not necessarily from a consumer perspective, but what will be the difference that will really change things for farmers? Oh, look, some transparency, I think, and some equity of the supply chain. I mean, really, we all should be in, you know, team agriculture. And the, the farmers are growing the best food in the world. There's no doubt about that. They're growing it efficiently and effectively. And those people that then transport it and then retail it, we all should know what the left hand's doing with the right hand's doing. We all should have an understanding of each other's model so that we can all benefit the most. And if we all benefit the most and have a reasonable share of that pie, uh, then, the, then the consumer, of course, will be able to have good uh, prices as well. At the moment, it would seem, and the inquiries will bring this out, but it would seem that the supermarkets are the ones making the biggest profit for the least amount of effort. Ian Saw, a farmer and the Taz Farmers president. On the text line, Tiger from Seven Mile Beach says, Hi, with supermarket prices, one needs to take into consideration the transport costs. Keep the text coming in on 0438 ABC Listen. Keeping bored parents busy is easy with the ABC Listen app. Then we can listen to our stuff. Find our things with Imagine This. Why do we have to sleep? Ask big questions with Short and Carly. They must be fun with getting insulted back. And catch the dinosaur racing with Dino Dino Might! Listen big to podcasts and audiobooks just for us on the ABC Listen app. Download it now from your app store. The Country Hour with Lucy Cooper on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. The plan to put wind turbines on Robins Island has hit yet another hurdle in its ongoing saga. Last year, you'll remember the developers won their appeal to get rid of a condition that would force them to shut down five months of the year to protect the orange-bellied parrot. Well, now, the Circular Head Coastal Awareness Network, which is a protest group formed by some nearby farmers and other locals, is appealing that decision to the Supreme Court. And this might be the final battle for that group, as Chair Steve Pilkington explained to Meg Powell. Well, our group has appealed the decision of the TASCAT um, on Robins Island um, on several grounds, um, and we're doing it because we think their decision in broad, broadly was wrong. Right. How strong do you feel your case is? I mean, this thing has gone through um, a lot of rigmarole so far already. <laughs> do, do you well, feel that this is a good step? We, we certainly feel that the case about Robins Island not having a wind farm is a very strong case. Um, but we have been defeated on, on our attempts in TASCAT. We think it's the right thing to do is keep fighting. I mean, the condition, it, uh, the approval was not without its conditions anyway. Among those, a $100,000 fine for um, winter, uh, wedge-tailed eagles, eagles found dead... Are these not enough in your eyes? Certainly, 
the eager one isn't, but that's not one of the ones we're appealing on. Um, but if you take that to its conclusion, there's six wedge-tailed eagles have Robins Island as their home. If the wind turbines wipe them out, that 600000 that's been paid for destroying the eagle habitat of um, Robins Island. So if our whole argument is that we know renewable energy is an important thing, but there are far better places to put it for the environment and we believe for the economy too. The government has been quite vocal about Tasmania's need for renewable energy uh, and, and as well as we've, we've got a quote here from the Premier talking about the balance between renewable energy and protective native species, which the government says this project does do. Do you agree with that? We agree with the statement that there should be a balance between economic development and the environment. We think that balance hasn't been um, afforded Robins Island. If, if you have the one of the most important bird habitats and wetland habitats in Tasmania, and important in world terms too, that the state government chooses to put a wind farm on instead of planning properly to, to search for places that have a good wind resource and lower values of, of environmental importance, we think they're wrong. But do you agree that we do we need uh, more power as a matter of urgency? I think I do agree that we need more power. I don't know what the urgency is. Anything that's planned in a rush doesn't work. The government's had 10 years to plan things properly and the sooner they start planning things so that they don't get contentious court battles, that the economy can progress and nature can survive... The more the the faster we'll we'll get renewable energy that works. Uh, this is obviously the next step in this process. If you're not successful here, is there any further you can take it? I don't think we can take it any further. Our resources will be exhausted. There is a challenge available in the High Court of Australia, but we don't contemplate doing that. We've been fighting this project for four years. <laughs> it is frustrating and exhausting, and I'm sure the other side feel the same way. We think it's such an important issue that we're not going to give up while we can still keep fighting. Well, we've paid for everything just hand-to-mouth, really. We, we raised money for the appeal against, against the council decision. For some people, I think the biggest donation was $2,000. So we'll go out and try the same thing again. We've got a, a strong legal team that are giving us great support and we'll just fight on while we can. Steve Pilkington from the Circular Head Coastal Awareness Network. The wind turbine proponents, ACEN, declined to comment, and Premier Jeremy Rockcliffe said he believed the decision to allow the wind farm to operate all year has been a pragmatic one that struck an appropriate balance between enabling renewable energy projects and protecting native species. Now we cross to the ABC newsroom for headlines with Michael Della Fontana. 
Thank you, Lucy. A massive winter storm moving across the eastern half of the US has knocked out power to over half a million homes and businesses and caused at least three deaths. Twelve states have been affected in total, but the hardest hit states are North Carolina, Pennsylvania and New York. The power outages come ahead of a brutal freeze expected to blanket the region starting this weekend. Australian climate scientist, Associate Professor Sarah Perkins Kirkpatrick, says the latest findings of 2023 being the warmest year on record is shocking. The EU's Copernicus Climate Change Service says the planet in 2023 was an average of 1.48 degrees Celsius warmer than in the pre-industrial period period, it makes it the hottest year on record, breaking the previous high set in 2016. Tasmania Police has asked for help in finding missing woman Christine Linwood. Ms Linwood was last seen leaving a hotel in Hobart's CBD last Thursday. She has blonde hair and glasses. Police and family members are concerned for her welfare. And Australia's squad for the Test Cricket Series against the West Indies has been announced with Matthew Renshaw and Scott Boland included among the 13 players. All-rounder Cameron Green also returns to starting 11 for the first test in Adelaide starting next Wednesday. He replaces retired opener David Warner, but the new batting order is yet to be confirmed. More news at one o'clock. Thank you, Michael. On the Country Hour, it's 12.33 and it's time to check the weather forecast. Good afternoon, Mark Analak at the Bureau of Meteorology. And a very good afternoon to you. Looking at the radar, well, there's not much really, there's not much rainfall at all. Well, there's a couple of problems there. One of the radars is actually offline for maintenance work at the moment, so uh, they're covering the southeast. You won't see anything there. Thankfully, we don't have any weather across the state uh, as we speak. Uh, in the last 24 hours, it's been fairly um, sort of settled across the state. Um, we did have a bit of low cloud around overnight last night and maybe some light shower activity um, very early yesterday after yesterday morning. Um, as a result, we've only got sort of rainfall totals of, of less than a millimetre around the place. But as we speak, um, the cloud is starting to clear up and we've got mostly mostly sunny skies across uh, across sort of central and eastern parts of the state and uh, western parts of the state. Under the influence of this northwest to westerly flow, we've still got quite a bit of cloud packing up against the uh, the west coast and and even some partly cloudy conditions across the north. One thing I will mention overnight last night, we did have quite a warm night. Uh, overnight temperatures were were sort of above average through most parts. Um, yeah, looking down the list here, that they've you know. There wasn't really anywhere that had temperatures below average uh, overnight last night. So a warm night last night, leading to northerly winds today and a warm day across the state. Speaking of which, uh, current temperatures looking around, um, hovering around sort of 22 degrees, Launceston, uh, Devonport 21 degrees, Wynyard 22. Um, out in the west, a little bit under the clouds, Strawn is currently sitting on 17.6 degrees uh, with, with this hour or two expected later this afternoon. Um, out in the east, St Helens, 24 degrees, where it's uh, pretty much nice and sunny out there at the moment. For the rest of this afternoon, uh, we are expecting that cloud to continue to build up out in the west. Um, maybe some shower activity developing uh, this afternoon about the western half of the state, mainly because of a cold front that is sort of knocking on our doorstep from the west. Uh, that cold front will pass over the, over the state uh, overnight tonight and we're expecting some showers to, to develop about the western parts. Eastern, northeastern corner and then even the southeast uh, we can expect mostly fine conditions um, right through to this evening.
Wow, and rainfall in the coming days, do we still have a little bit on our horizon come next week? There is a little bit coming up. Um, look, for the, for the most part, we've got a high-pressure ridge sort of hovering around somewhere around Tasmania, whether it's just over Bass Strait or just to the south of us. Either way, we're going to have some sort of onshore airstream um, sort of bringing on some light shower activity to parts of the state, particularly the west. Um, so when we look at our sort of state forecast, we've got fine conditions for most parts of the state for the next couple of days, um, but there is a risk of some light shower activity about the west and, and, and the far southern parts of the state because of the onshore airstream. Um, Probably on Saturday we will see a, sort of an increase in the risk of shower activity right across the whole state, um, probably more so across the north and west, uh, less likely in, in the east and, and southeast, but there is a risk of showers across, uh, across Tasmania on Saturday and hopefully easing back on Sunday back to mainly fine conditions. So uh, all in all, uh, there's a lot of words there to mention mainly fine conditions for the next few days. <laughs> no, that's great. And just uh, quickly, any warnings? Uh, we have one warning out there at the moment, and that is a coastal wind warning. Um, we do have the the warning for um, northern and northeastern coastal waters from Stanley to Wineglass Bay, including Banks Strait and Franklin Sound, and for southern waters from Tasman Island around to Low Rocky Point. Hopefully by tomorrow, um, we'll just have the one warning out for the um, the southern waters from Tasman Island to Low Rocky Point for the morning. Any more on coastal waters and swell there? Um, generally we have a northwest to westerly airstream that's um, sort of delivering winds of around 10 to 20 knots, uh, possibly reaching 20 to 30 knots in the south where we, and, and uh, in, in the northeast this afternoon where we have those strong wind warnings. In terms of swells, we have a west-southwesterly swell uh, recording at our Cape Sorrel um, buoy there. Um, currently it's reading 1.4 metres SIG wave height on a, t and a 2 metre maximum wave height. Uh, as I said, it's a west-southwesterly swell there. For the rest of the afternoon, um, western waters and southern waters can expect that southwesterly swell of around one to one and a half metres to gradually build to two to three metres later this afternoon. Northern waters, a confused swell of around half a metre. And for eastern waters, we have a southeasterly swell of one to two metres and a secondary swell of a, a northeasterly at one metre. Mark Analak, thank you for the update. My pleasure. Mark Analak from the Bureau of Meteorology. You're listening to The Country Hour with Lucy Cooper on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Speaking of weather and really the Bureau of Meteorology, because when the Bureau declared an El Nino event in September, there were warnings of a hot and dry summer. So why has this summer been so wet? Climate experts say it's a combination of misconceptions surrounding El Nino and several climate drivers that, all combined together, are contributing to wetter conditions. Dr Carl Braganza, National Manager of Climate Services at the Bureau of Meteorology, says forecasting this year has been incredibly tricky. Yeah, it's certainly been a really interesting year. Um, we started out you know, still with El Nino-like conditions um, from the last three years, um, and then we had really from about April um, indications that an El Nino event was spinning up in the Pacific, which normally means quite a hot and dry spring and, and winter time um, for eastern Australia. And we also had a positive Indian Ocean dipole, which is another thing that favours dry conditions over southeast Australia. 
Um, and that's actually certainly what we saw from August. Through yeah, we saw that, didn't we? Yeah. Yeah, so August through to October, surprisingly, was the driest three-month period of any three months on record. And uh, September was the driest September and the second driest month of any month ever recorded. So um, we declared El Nino sort of at the end of September. And, you know, typically, while our seasonal forecasts were saying that there was a chance of rain in the east over summer, um, certainly if you were preparing for um, emergency services and others for the summer period, you know, looking from, from October and September time, um, it looked like, yeah, it would have been prudent um, to expect at least, you know, dryish conditions to continue on the back of that very dry spring in El Nino. Um, but what's happened has certainly been surprising to everyone, particularly in the southeast. Um, I think the rainfall has been patchy um, in other parts of the country and it's been very dry for the northern monsoon, particularly once you get away from far north Queensland. Um, but it's quite unusual to get very regular rainfall and such sort of extended humid, humid conditions into Victoria and, and New South Wales during um, an El Nino period. And of course, we saw the the big bushfires, bushfires in mid north coast, around Tenterfield as well, uh, in the Pilliga, you know, in the lead up, and then it just then the tap turned on and it just started to bucket down. Yeah, it's been a real mixed bag. So we've seen you know fire weather, um, heat waves, uh, tropical cyclones come through, and then we've had these really tropical rainfall events um, extending further far south and. Yeah, that sort of rain is normally associated with a La Nina event when it sort of continues on and on like that. But yeah, to get it during an El Nino is quite unusual. And so what is, is it just a freak, uh, you know, or is it climate change? Is, you know, why is, what's happening here? Yeah, I think it'll take us some time to work out exactly what is pushed into the climate system. Actually, the combination of unusual factors is pointing to some of the causes. So what we've had is an El Nino event um, and a delayed monsoon and what's called a very positive southern annular mode. So the winds around Antarctica have contracted further south towards the Antarctic continent, and that fact is really unusual during an El Nino with a delayed monsoon. It's more typical of what you'd see during a La Nina year. And when um, the southern annular mode does that, it tends to direct southeasterly moisture um, from the Tasman Sea um, over New South Wales and Victoria. And the Tasman Sea has been really warm. It's been up to six degrees above average. So that's pretty much where the source of the moisture is coming from. Um, and we're getting a circulation pattern um, that's favouring that that's quite unusual during an El Nino event. Yeah, and that's what happened, I gather, when we got the uh, 400 millimetres in one day in the mid-north coast and north coast. And I gather, you know, those that sort of unusual pattern is feeding into, uh, you know, the continued rain in Victoria. Yeah, correct. And normally El Nino has less of an influence over the summer months. It tends to have its um, biggest impacts on eastern Australia over winter and spring. Um, so it's not unusual to get one or two you know, heavy rainfall events and even flooding events over summer during El Nino and to have the sequence of rain you know, coming back again with that extended sort of re- really humid, sticky conditions is, is quite unusual. And, um, yeah, so this week we've got rainfall... Um, very high in, in the Goulburn Valley in Victoria, but extending all the way up, uh, you know, more than half of New South Wales covered by rainfall, daily rainfall totals in the top 3% of, of high high daily rainfall mm. totals ever recorded and right. extending just over the border into Queensland. So um, it'll be a very interesting year for some of the researchers to look at. Dr. Carl Bragg-Anza, National Manager of Climate Services at the Bureau of Meteorology, speaking to Michael Condon. And this 
Recent wild weather has wiped out more than $10 million worth of fruit from Victoria's Goulburn Valley region, with some growers losing their entire crop to the extreme weather. About 500 hectares of stone and tree fruit was damaged in the New Year hailstorm, while then this week's record-breaking rain and humidity brings the risk of brown rot. And it comes after the Sunraysia region, which is in the Victoria's northeast, also suffered significant damage with the recent rain. Fruit Growers Victoria Growers Services Manager Michael Crisera says for some, it's the second season in a row that's brought damage. It's fairly close to about 500 hectares that's been impacted and varying levels from about you know 40% to 100% affected fruit, mostly um, apples and pears and also plums. Some places had 100% of their fruit affected? Yes. What does that mean for them going forward? Oh, look, it just means that they've got to think about what they do with that fruit. So they'll more than likely um, make that decision as they get closer to harvest. But, you know, that fruit, most of that fruit may be harvested for juice. Anything sort of that 70% below, some growers may try to pick that for class one or composite pack. It just, yeah, it just depends. It sort of, people wait and see how things heal over. But historically, hail tends to... (laughs) look worse as the season progresses sometimes. On the tree too, visually you can think there's 30 40%, but there may be 50 60% damage there. And what does that damage actually look like? Is it just sort of external damage or can it cause some internal damage as well to the fruit? Um, oh, most of it's external. The fruit actually surprisingly does recover quite well, but, yeah, just the way it looks, you know, depending how severe the damage is, most of that fruit will be unsaleable. It was quite large hail on the 2nd of January, so um, depending how things heal, it's the fruit that doesn't get hit. Growers can salvage, but, yeah, there are some growers that have been hit quite badly with larger hail and 100% of their fruit. If fruit can't be sold whole and intact, are there some other options? So you mentioned juice there. Or are there other, some other processing options? Correct, yes. Yeah. So if there is any opportunity for processing, it really depends on the processes if they want it. And then, they, you know, growers need to try and keep any sort of rots out of it to make sure that it's still suitable for processing. Plums are a difficult one. There doesn't seem to be much options for processing when it comes to plums. At the moment, but um, apples and pears there is. It all just depends on what the price is and whether it's, you know, growers can get some return on their costs, you know, like growers need to at least cover the cost of harvest, which is, you know, anywhere between 50 and $80 a bin. The hail was then followed by quite a lot of rain uh, across most of the state across the past week. The Bureau of yep. Meteorology actually put out a brown rot advice um, earlier yep. in the week. What does yep. that mean for fruit growers and is there anything that you can do to manage that kind of risk? So most of the brown rot warnings apply to stone fruit, so nectarine, peaches and plums. Most guys will be looking at uh, fungicides to try and um, prevent the spread. And, um, yeah, so it really depends on how close the fruit is to maturity. So the more riper the fruit is, the more risk they are with brown rot. So growers will need to make sure that they keep pretty good orchard hygiene and sanitation to try and ensure that uh, the brown rot doesn't spread to their good fruit. Michael Crisera from Fruit Growers Australia speaking there with Fiona Broom. On ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania, this is The Country Hour with Lucy Cooper. Owning a couple of commercial fishing boats to supply your waterfront cafe is quite the investment. However, it makes perfect sense when it's located in the busy seaside town of Bichonneau. The Lobster Shack overlooks uh, the area where the boats are launched, including Marcus and Sarah Walkham's boat. Marcus told Claire Burberry it's been a busy summer with plenty of workers available. 
we've got a good crew of international backpackers now, which we didn't, you know, we've only sort of just getting back um, after COVID. So to get their visas, they have to go and do 88 days of work in a, in a regional area. So we're getting a lot of those through here, which is helping to man the cafe and so forth. So, and are, um, is it easy to house them, find places look, for them to stay? Uh, most of them seem to find their own accommodation. At the mm. moment, we've got 17 staff on here every day, so um, and probably 10 of those are, are backpacker-type people, so some of them stay in their cars, others stay at the backpackers. <laughs> um, they get short-term rentals and so forth. So Yeah, yeah. great. Uh, yeah, look, it's every year it seems to be getting busier and the winters sort of get shorter and shorter. You know, we have, have a couple of quiet weeks in August, but the rest of the year is is pretty good, really. Pretty unique. Um, we're pretty lucky to have the location we had. Yeah, no, we've had a really busy um, last month or so at the Lobster Shack and it's all going to plan at the moment. Yeah. Great. After a pretty quiet winter and spring? No, look, it's been pretty positive here. Um, we're pretty lucky up here at Bishno with tourist-wise, um, get a fairly steady flow through here most most days. Yeah, it's always it's always been on the up, which is positive for us. Mm. Bishano seems to be booming compared to a lot of other towns. What? Why do you think that is? It's nice having that oceanside location. You know, it appeals to fairly picturesque, beautiful spot part of the coast and, um, you know, there's good surf for people and fishing's really good and, yeah, and... I, and I guess it's got a little bit more to offer. There's a few different eateries and cafes and so forth that some of the other towns on the coast don't have. I heard that it really attracts a lot of young families and the school's brilliant. There's great staff there. That surely would help as well. Yeah, yeah. Like um, the last, so, or since COVID, um, the amount of young families that have moved here is, I couldn't tell you how many, but yeah, the, the daycare centre's full and the schools are full, you know, so that's really positive for the town to have young people moving to the area. Uh, Marcus, mm. is it right that you actually go out fishing yourself for crays? Yeah, yeah, we've got a 40-odd foot cray boats down at Margate at the moment because um, the east coast is shut at the moment for commercial fishing. Yeah, whenever we need supply for the cafe here, um, I'll head down there and head down to the south coast of Tassie and fish for lobsters down there yeah that's sort of i guess every fortnight we sort of do a trip down there for for four or five days um fill up the boat and then come home again and that will keep the restaurant fulfilled until you go out again pretty much yeah if we need a top up um we can buy fish off other fishermen or there's another processor in Bishino here that we can buy some fish off as well so we try to catch as much as we can but the reality is the cafe sort of uses more lobster than we can supply, so we need a few other a few other options as well. What other fish can you get directly from the ports of Bishino? Yeah, well, we've also got another another boat, which I use up here for the banded Mowong fishery. So um, we catch quite a few of those every year, and we also get a lot of bycatch in that, like bastard trumpeter and boarfish and... Um, perch and so forth that either sell as fresh fish in the cafe here or or cook up as daily specials and stuff so yeah. it's good to have that that option of our own um of our own fish to to serve you know local fish served locally so 
Have you heard any whispers from recreational fishermen, or fisher people I should call them, on what the, the fish stocks are like for flathead and other popular species? Flathead are sort of fairly transient. They kind of move through Bishano here. Some days you'll go out and catch catch your five flathead, I think, that you're allowed now um, fairly quickly. Other, other days it might take a bit longer. The lobsters up here have been pretty good for recreationally since the season opened. Yeah, I've heard of people catching 10, a dozen lobsters in their pots. Um, they're only allowed two per day, but um, so they have to sort of take the two two best ones and throw the rest back. So yeah. Really and when will the crayfishing season open for commercial businesses? First uh, of March, it opens again. At the moment, uh, there's only 90 tonnes is allowed to be caught on the east coast, and then it shuts again. So um, last year, that took about three months to catch, and then it shut. Marcus Walcombe, commercial fisherman and cafe owner, speaking with Claire Burberry. And now to a story I mentioned at the top of the program, from working on the land as a farmer or grazier to running an agribusiness, working as an agronomist or consultant or operating in the banking, finance and marketing space, there's a job in agriculture for everyone. But let's throw another one into the mix, food stylist. Meet Sarah Coupleditch, who's working to enter the industry. I am working on becoming a food stylist and in the food industry here. Yeah. So I've studied as a chef and worked as a chef and I'm trying to bridge into food media and publication. And at the moment I am currently on a working holiday visa. So I'm do- just finishing my first one and in that I have to do 88 days to apply for a second one. And that's why I'm currently here at Man Blue. What does a food stylist do? Um, so a food stylist is a very broad term for a couple of hats that you wear so within that a lot of it is um, the kind of final display of what food looks like but before that there's a lot of recipe testing recipe development, recipe writing there's also a lot of um, art directing and liaising as according to you know what the lookers feel is before there's a lot of like pre-production and then there's the production itself which is the um, you know the actual making of food for camera and then it's either depending on stills or um, whether it's stills or video for video, then you've also got all of that production that goes in place. And then you place it on film or on camera or for the camera um, accordingly on sets to be shot. And what made you want to get into that? Yeah, so um, so I, I studied graphic design and then from that I loved food always and I wanted to do food packaging. I then was like, oh... You know, maybe I should get a little bit more perspective of food. Went and did food, studied chefing, did um, three years studying, working, all the rest of it. And then I've decided that I don't want to work in a kitchen. Um, in that, I've also grew up in a very small area, lots of farming, love farms. So agriculture is also another sphere of things that I find interesting. And um, yeah, so I landed up doing, um, moving over to Melbourne to go and work in food styling um, and yeah, food has got so many levels to it, from you know the agricultural side, starting with the farming, to you know the end consumer, and then also looking at, at how a consumer gets to the point of wanting to consume, and what is the communication in between there. So, yeah, I like lots of different things. I have lots of different interests, um, but yeah, it's just the way the world's worked. I've managed to find my opportunities in different spectrums of 
what a food cycle would look like, which is pretty interesting. And would the work of a food um, stylist be like cookbooks or like ads for food on TV and things like that? Is that the kind yeah. of work that it culminates in? Yes, yeah. So um, anything from cookbooks to um, TV ads to shorts for um, like online media stuff to print ads to, yeah, all sorts of different things. But it's anything that is kind of like consumed food-wise visually. So anything that you visually see um, food-wise without actually eating it has been most likely, you know, done by a food stylist. Aspiring food stylist and North Queensland-based Mambaloo Mangoes worker Sarah Coupleditch. Time to head to the markets and Richard Bailey joins me. Afternoon, Richard. G'day, Lucy. How are you going? Very well, thank you. Tell me, how is the cattle market going yesterday? Yesterday at Piranha, we only had a small number of cattle. We're still still getting over the Christmas break, I think. We only had 40 cattle all up, and just about all of them were year well young cattle yearlings. There was um, there was a tough enough market, I thought. Uh, Restockers bought the vast majority of them, with yearling steers making 200 to 254 cents, and heifers 190 to 240 cents. Uh, look, there really weren't enough growing cattle to quote the best of the cows made 200 cents a kilo. Why do you reckon there were less cattle than usual? Oh, it's just this time of the year. We've had some pretty good rains throughout the state, uh, which would sort of slow things up a little bit. We've got a store cattle sale coming up uh, on Thursday week, and some will hold back for that. Um, yeah, and I think, you know, there's some pretty good... A lot of these rains have brought the crops on pretty well, so I reckon they'll hold cattle for a little while. Uh, there might not have been as many, but were they of good quality? Were, were they looking quite heavy? Uh, not so much heavy, but they were, yeah, the, the yearling cattle were of good quality um, and, and well finished. A uh, little bit crossy, some of them, but generally speaking, they were in pretty good order. Yeah, which you'd expect. I mean, the season's been pretty good apart from the south. The season's been pretty good up here for most of the year. Lamb, sheep meat prices, what's been happening in that market? Okay, we're following interstate trends, which have been pretty well publicised over the last uh, few weeks. Uh, We had 1,568 lambs, which is a few more. Um, The best of the lambs met very strong competition from a variety of uh, exporters and traders. Um, The best lambs, the best heavy lambs, made $148 to $184. Trade lambs, $120 to $172. And light trade seventy to one hundred and twenty dollars a head. Restockers bought very small lambs from uh, fifty-two to sixty-eight dollars, and light trade lambs sixty-eight to one hundred and eight dollars. Just to put that in perspective, I reckon mid mid December, I reckon those store lambs that were making that are now making seventy or eighty or ninety dollars. Which we were struggling to get thirty or forty dollars for, so there's a huge improvement there, and uh, it'd want to be too. But certainly the the lamb job uh, is going along pretty nicely. Um, not many mutton, four hundred and thirty four mutton, but this job improved considerably on where we were last year. Um, still not, not nothing fantastic, but it's certainly on the improve. Heavy sheep made twenty eight to forty three dollars, and medium weights twenty two to fifty six dollars a head. Just a reminder: there's a there's a um, a store lamb sale at, at Oatlands tomorrow, eleven o'clock start. There'll be a pretty good lineup of lambs there. If you're looking for lambs to run on, it'll be a pretty good place to go. Richard Bailey speaking there, and thanks so much for joining me on the Tasmanian Country Hour. It's been an absolute pleasure. I'll be back in your ears tomorrow, um, and. If you need to catch up on anything, head to abc.net.au forward slash rural. It's one o'clock.
My name is Thais. My favorite food to eat in summer. Hmm. I like salads. It's very nice, like, uh, yeah, Thai salads as well. ABC Radio Robert.